Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. We're going to be looking at overarching principles, general principles for mentoring our children in the faith, for basically passing on the torch of faith to our kids, discipling our kids. And this week will be largely introductory. We're going to be looking at the background in a minute of our passage that we're going to study, and that's Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 9. And that is clearly the most important text in the whole of Scripture for mentoring our children spiritually. Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9. And as I talk to parents and grandparents about this issue, I find that when it comes to leading our children to God and in God, that there's a lot of fear, a lot of guilt, a lot of anxiety as unwelcome intruders into the lives and minds of parents and grandparents. Older parents tend to worry about their past mistakes in parenting, and they wonder if they've you know, hindered their children in their walk towards God, or perhaps they have burdened their children unnecessarily because of their failure. Younger parents tend to worry about future sins and saddling their children with guilt and uh, redirecting them from the path of the Lord. And this, in essence, grandparents, older parents, and younger parents are all worrying about the same thing from different angles. And uh, I will tell you, while it's good and even wise to scrutinize our lives for sin and, and to pinpoint it, and to say, ah, I have struggles in these general areas. While it is good and wise to identify those things so that we can repent of them, right? And prevent harm, or we can repent of them and uh, promote healing and, and restoration. While it is good to do that, it is not productive. In fact, it's counterproductive to be self-obsessed about our failures and our shortcomings as parents. To be paralyzed and immobilized by guilt is never a good thing. Unless you're really in sin. <laughs> right? Once we've confessed those sins, guys, and we've handed them over to the Lord, we've repented of them, we have to learn to walk in God's grace. We have to lean hard into the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's why I've written a chapter in my book directed to to parents entitled Starting Where You Are by the Grace of God, because that is absolutely essential to effectively parent our children. We can't be morose about our failures. We have to look to God's grace, and he knows your, your frailties, and he will help you. Now, before we get going, I want to I give you three, three keys or three axioms, three rules for parenting. You go, oh, here he comes with the rules. No, these are designed to unburden you, okay? I want you to just file these three rules away as you think about where you are in your parenting journey, uh, wherever that may be, at the beginning or at the end, in the middle. And I'll tell you, the first two I stole from Eric Cobb. There's nothing new under the sun, I told him. You know, we're just all borrowers, stealers, we're, you know, we borrow each other's stuff. Um, I, I kind of took his point and then I filled in my own filling. So I kind of, he made the manicotti and I put the, the stuffing in there, cheese and ricotta and whatnot. 
But let me just give you these three rules. And these are, again, I, I say these to unburden you. And the first rule is this. Parenting, guys, has never, ever been done apart from sin. You understand that, right? Even with our first parents, Adam and Eve, they only had children after they fell and were removed from the garden. And I will tell you that sin complicated their child rearing intensely. Wouldn't you agree? Can you imagine what it would have been like to raise children in the garden without sin? No, I can't. Imagine raising your children, your particular brood, without sin. Having kids that are never selfish. Having kids that always control their temper. Having kids that politely insist that you sleep in on Saturday. <laughs> no, mother, father, please stay in bed. I'm just four years old, but me and my siblings who are younger will take care of breakfast. And we're only going to watch a half hour of cartoons, the good ones, and we'll spend the balance of our time memorizing scripture and <laughs> praying. Imagine that. You can't. Because it doesn't exist. And it never happened. All right? Only one couple had the benefit of raising a sinless child. Mary and Joseph, right? And that was only with their firstborn. And even with Jesus, because they were themselves sinners, they didn't know what to do with his holiness. Right? Like when he was at the temple and his mother said, Son, why have you treated us in this manner? We were crazy, afraid. And he said, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? They didn't understand him. They couldn't completely. Sin has always brought difficulty and immeasurable pain to the whole process of, of parenting. Just think of uh, even at the beginning with Adam and Eve in Genesis, Genesis chapter 4, verse 8 where all of a sudden you have the first two boys, the first two humans born of a woman, Cain and Abel, and the eldest son or the firstborn son kills the secondborn because of jealousy. Can you imagine the pain that that must have brought to Adam and Eve? Because they knew what it was like to live in sinless innocence in the garden. And now all of a sudden one son murdered another? Sin has always clouded the parenting picture and infused it with many a heartache. And in spite of that, guys, God still commands it. Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9 commands it. It teaches us how to redeem that whole parenting situation by mentoring our children spiritually. Ephesians 6, 4 commands it. And God always reminds us of what a blessing it is to be parents. In Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5, it refers to the fruit of our parenting, our children, as a gift, a reward, and a blessing. And, and God says, if, you having, if you're having to parent over and over and over again, you're supremely blessed. And parenting has always been used by God to bring immeasurable blessing to the world, right? It was through a series of parents, beginning with Abraham and Sarah, and the patriarchs, the fathers, and David that eventually led to Joseph and Mary, and God brought whom through them? 
Jesus, the Savior of the world, the Messiah of Israel. So, but do remember that we need a Redeemer. So sin has never, or parenting has never been accomplished without sin. The second rule that I want to bring your attention to is that you will never be the exception to rule one. Okay? Parenting has not been done without sin, and you and I won't be the exception. If there is one thing that is universally true about mankind, is it is that we are in need of a Savior. That is absolutely true. There's only been one man, one person has been born without sin, right? And because of that, that divinity and that sinlessness, he bore our sin on himself, took it to the cross, paid the ultimate price of God's wrath. And 2 Corinthians 5.21, my favorite verse in all of the Bible, says that he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In essence, God is telling us, or the scripture is telling us, Paul is telling us, teaching us, that God treated Jesus as if he lived our lives, my life, so that in turn he might treat us as if we lived the life of Jesus. And then that's the beauty of our positional righteousness in Christ. But our practical righteousness does not measure up to that right now, right? And until that beautiful day when it dawns, we will wrestle with sin. And among many other things, that means that you and I will not be perfect parents. So get over it. It has not been done without sin and you and I will not be the exception to it. So lean into God's grace. Call out to him. He knows our frailty. He'll give us the grace that we need to raise our children. The third rule, very quickly, now that you know rules one and two, is this. In your parenting, guys, major on love. God's love. Christ's love. Selfless love. I will tell you this. Earnestly pursuing the love of Christ for your home, applying the love of God in your home, listen to me carefully, will short-circuit and redeem a lot of the schemes of the devil and sin in your family's life. It'll literally, the love of God, the love of Christ, will short-circuit the devil's intentions for you. It'll throw a monkey wrench right into his system. Listen to what, Paul, what Peter says in 1 Peter 4.8. He says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love, what? Covers a multitude of sins. So keep those three things in mind, especially as we go through these principles and, and you're wondering, boy, I, I don't know if I measure up. God, God is with you. God will bless you by his grace to, to disciple your children. And that's what I want to do in the next three weeks. We want to look at some general principles for discipling our children in the Lord, for raising our children in the Lord. And these principles have come largely out of my study of the Word of God, the heart of God in Scripture for the family, and also out of my attempts with my dear wife, stumbling, bumbling attempts to apply these principles to our home. And We've been married for 34 years, and we've been parenting for 31. So it, it comes out of that. 
And I wish I could tell you that I'm thoroughly accomplished in all the things I'm going to tell you. But I'm not. And I'm still endeavoring to learn, to obey, to apply God's word. But one thing I can tell you with absolute certainty, based on 31 years of parenting, I can tell you that God's grace is very great. Very great. And so I hope you find encouragement wherever you may be in the parenting journey, whether it's like you're looking to someday be married and have children, or you're just married, you don't have kids yet, you're looking forward to that, or you have little ones, or you are somewhere in the middle, you're pushing the last one out the door, or you're grandparents. And let me just say, for those of you who are grandparents, I am, the text is, will uh, address grandparents as well. It's intended for your son, your, your son's son, and your grandson. I mean, it just goes back generationally. And parents, grandparents, there's a special, I invite you, without getting permission from your kids, to be involved in the lives spiritually of your grandchildren. I mean, grandparenthood is as close to a do-over as you get in life, okay? And grandchildren, listen, you have a special bond with them. In fact, you never stop being a parent too, right? My dad was 92 when he passed away a few years ago. And I saw his counsel, his prayers, his wisdom continually. You never stop being a parent. It's a great opportunity for a do-over. And it's a great blessing. I mean, the people that I've talked to here, every grandparent that I talk to virtually tells me, man, if I knew that grandchildren were this much fun, I would have had them first. <laughs> and you can ask people here that have grandchildren, like Alan and Linda, I don't know if they're here today, but they have about 900 grandchildren. <laughs> and uh, they're a lot of fun. And basically, grandparents, or those who are looking towards that great new beginning, you need to remember you never get off the family merry-go-round. Okay, Even when you die, your legacy is here. You don't get to get off the family merry-go-round, you just get to switch ponies. And I'm not sure what that means, but um, <laughs> anyway. You know, as I've studied God's word about the family, what I realize more and more that by and large is that God gives us large overarching principles for parenting, for marriage, that he then expects us to unpack, to understand to, to muse over, to think about, and then to apply widely and wisely. Let's just take one, one thing. Let's just take, for example, the issue of discipline. The Bible, would you agree with me, clearly teaches us to discipline our children, right? Listen to Proverbs. Proverbs 19, 18. It says this, very interesting verse. It says, discipline your son while there is hope. No, there's a window when you can discipline, correct your children. There's a window that by, if you logically follow this to its conclusion, that will close. Discipline your son while there is hope. And listen, do not desire his death. You say, whoa, that seems a little extreme. Discipline or die? Who wrote this? It was the son of David, Solomon. My son, uh, Aaron, who is on an, an evangelistic journey this morning. You can pray for him. I'll talk to you about that later sometime. But he and I were talking about 
he, he was, he's reading through the historical books of the Old Testament, and we were talking about First Kings, and he told me with, a, with just this sad look on his face, he said, Dad, David was such a poor father. Do you know, Dad, that he failed, by and large, to correct his sons? And we got to talking about that. You know what? There's three specifically that came to mind, uh, Absalom, Ammon, and Adonijah. And all three of those boys became rebels, and their rebel, their rebellion killed them. They all died. Solomon says, discipline your son while there is hope, and do not desire his death. He is not kidding. He, was a, he lost three brothers to lack of correction in the home. Proverbs 23, 13, it says, Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with a rod, he will not die. And you say, well, he might die if you don't apply the rod, but he won't die if you do. Now, we all <clears throat> have to be careful and judicious how we apply corporal punishment. But the Bible says, don't hold it back if your child needs us. The Bible tells us very clearly to discipline our children, but would you notice that in those verses, God does not give us a specific matrix on how, when, where, with what you should discipline, right? And you say, well, that's too bad. That would have been very helpful. I would have liked to have had in the canon the book of parenting with the subcategory discipline. Oh, look at here. You're one, years one to six, years seven to twelve. There is none of that. Why? Why is that not there? Why doesn't God say, you need to do this at this appropriate time with this kind of implement or whatever? Why doesn't God do that? Well, for one, he wants us to understand the, the biblical principle and then call out to him for wisdom. To get on our knees and to pray and to trust, to say, Lord, how do I apply this to my child? Right? And God is honored by that. He loves it when we trust. He loves us when we call out to him. And nothing will bring a parent quicker to their knees than their children. Another reason why God doesn't give us specific manuals on discipline, we're talking about just that one example, is because... God creates individuals who are vastly different from one another, right? We fall into general categories as far as personality and temperament and so forth, but I have yet to have one parent tell me, oh, all my kids are all the same. They're homogeneous. I just eat macaroni and cheese, one food, and we apply one mode of discipline, whatever it is. Each person, each child, guys, and those of you who have multiple little ones, you know this, they're a case study unto themselves, right? They're vastly different, and so they take vastly different approaches or applications of the principle of discipline. I have a friend um, who lives in Montana. He's out of state, but they've had five children, and we were talking about his two older daughters, We'll just call them daughter one and daughter two, okay? And he said, daughter one wanted to know where the boundary was. She said, mom and dad, what can I do and not do? I want to see the boundary. And they would go, okay, honey, it's right, right here. He said, the reason she wanted to know where the boundary was was because she wanted to steer clear of it. She wanted like big margins so that she would be okay. She didn't want to get into trouble. That was just her. She had a little heart of obedience. Beautiful child. Weird, right? 
He said, daughter number two also wanted to know where the line was. Where's the line, daddy? It's right here. Right here, honey. Don't go near it, daughter number two. But the reason she wanted to know where the line was was so that she could get a running start and catapult off the line to get as far away as she could from the rule. Now, those two girls who are lovely wives and mothers today took very different approaches by their parents in terms of discipline. I've had four. Each one of my kids has been so different than the other, especially my first two. My firstborn, my son, my eldest son, Joshua, he required, he's not here, he's in Sacramento raising his own family now, but so he can't fight back. He required a lot of spankings because he was stubborn like his daddy. I cannot tell you the number of times I told Joshua, Joshua, I'll see you up in your room. I'll, I'll see you up in your room. I got to make sure I'm not insane first, so I'll see you up in your room. <laughs> now, we were always, like I said, careful how we applied what we called the board of knowledge, you know, a little wooden spoon um, to the posterior. But I can't tell you the amount of times I had to tell him, I'll see you up in your room. And then when I'm up there, I say, Joshua, now, before I spank you, it's like, do you want a last cigarette or a blindfold? <laughs> Um, no, I, I would say, look at me in the eye. There's something about looking into each other's eyes. It's like, oh, the window of the soul, you know. I would say, look at me in the eye, take his little cup of his little face, and then I would tell him, that's my chin. Look at me in the eye. That's my forehead. Look at me in the eye. Okay, and we're calm, and we address the issues. But he took a lot of hands-on correction. My daughter, Rebecca, who is here and can defend herself, she was so different. If she ever disobeyed us or, you know, was having a bad attitude, all I had to do with Rebecca is say, Rebecca? And immediately the little hands would go to the face. And her eyes would well over with tears of remorse. And that was it. It was time for restoration. Now, maybe she was... <laughs> She was playing me like a violin. I don't know. <laughs> Little girls do something to their daddies when they cry, let me tell you. But with her, it was very different. You know, and when I, when I had my first, my only girl, that's when I really discovered that, man, girls are really, really complex. You know, unlike my sons, they're like me. They're clueless little dudes, you know. They're just, oh, look, a street full of impacted traffic, I think. I'll cross it. It's like, what are you thinking, child? Very, very different. But even among my sons, it just they were all so, their needs were different. Uh, each child requires a different studied approach. And that's true whether we're talking about discipline or teaching or learning styles or activities. You'll have one kid that lives and breathes to kick, throw, catch a ball. And you have another one that lives and breathes to curl up with a good book on the couch and think metaphysical thoughts. <laughs> oh, reading Kierkegaard again, okay? All right, well, let me know how it turns out because I still haven't figured him out. Very different, very different children. And the, true can be, the same can be said about marriage. 
God gives us very broad principles for marriage that we need to discern, unpack, and then apply individually to our spouse. Eric was teaching about, as I understand, I wasn't here, uh, about marriage last week, right? And men were instructed by Paul, by the Holy Spirit, to love our wives as what? As Christ loves the church. Now, what that looks like in my marriage may look very different than what that would look like in your marriage, right? I mean, there are certain generalities we can say that apply to all of us, like that means don't be a jerk. That's true, but it means that you study the situation, you become a student of your wife, and you take the principle of loving your wife, and you say, ah, my wife loves to get roses, flowers. While another man's wife might feel she has no use for flowers. What a waste of money. I don't know. I've never met any lady that said that, but I'm sure they're there. They're out there. But some ladies might prefer a garden, planted garden, a winter garden or a spring garden, right? Now, just for the practicality of it, you know, a bouquet of flowers is cheaper and faster, but that may not work for you. But my wife would prefer a garden. So... To love our wives as Christ loves his people expresses itself in, there are certain homogeneous things, but it expresses itself differently in each individual marriage. And that's how God teaches us about the family. He gives us broad, broad principles. Love your wives. Discipline your children. That we need to understand and unpack and have a handle on so that we can apply the truth judiciously. God wants us to have a handle on the fundamentals. That's, listen, if you're a doctor or if you're in business or golf, you love golf, you love math, you love your family, you have to have a handle on the fundamentals, right? Don't let that word scare you off because fundamentals is a word that's just been mongrelized and stolen by the world. It just means the basics, the ground foundation. We have to understand those things and we have to embrace them in order to apply them. You don't want a doctor who was not really good in biology, right? A guy who physiology, anatomy, pathology, who cares about that? A guy that gets off on physics and math and chemistry but has got a C in biology. You don't want a guy like that. You know, to have him sit you down at his examination table and say, now, tell me about your, uh, your, whatchamacallit. Oh, you mean my spleen? Yeah, that squishy internal thing. I, tell me about, you know what, you want a guy that understands the basics so that he can discern what's going on in your body and lead you to a solution. It's the same thing with the Christian family. We have to have a handle, guys. That's what we're going to be studying about, mentoring our children spiritually. We're going to be looking at the basics, the fundamentals. What do we need to understand and grab a hold of in order to impact our children for Christ and for eternity? We have to have those fundamentals in place. Years ago, congratulations, by the way, to Dodger fans, right? World Series. Poor Cub fans are going to have to wait another lifetime. 150 years or something like that. Sorry. My empathies. I always love to fly over uh, 
the Cubs stadium because I can say, look, even from here you can see them losing. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I say that because I don't think there are any Cub fans here, really. <laughs> Check the tires after the service, honey. <laughs> but a few years ago, if you're a Dodger fan at all, you're familiar with the name Steve Sachs. He was a premier second baseman for the Dodgers. He was a, a very productive and prodigious baseball player. In fact, he, he was, in his career, he went to five All-Star games. He batted over 300 three different seasons, which is re quite remarkable. He stole 40 bases in six different seasons for a total, and I love this number, 444 stolen bases. I mean, 444. That, that's like metaphysically satisfying somehow. That's a lot of bases stolen. In 1982, he was Rookie of the Year. He was a very productive baseball player. But right as he was beginning to ascend his career, in 1983, he literally lost his mechanics in fielding and throwing. Now listen. If you want to be a major ball league infielder, and you don't know how to feel the grounder and throw a guy out at first, you don't have Gornish, okay? It t it, you, if you're a pastry chef or a preacher or an engineer and we can't catch and throw, that's okay. Don't get near a diamond. Just go watch it. But if you want to be a baseball player and you can't field and throw, you have no future. And Steve Sachs, he said, literally, had a mental, I had a mental block and I forgot how to field and throw. I mean, that's, that's horrible. That's like a guy that models clothes for a living, and he forgot how to put on his pants. Yeah, shoes first, then pants. No. You know, it's just, it's, it's impossible to have a career in baseball. In fact, let me read you this quote from a guy named uh, Ross Newman of the L.A. Times. He was reflecting back on this season. He said, it will be recalled, particularly by those unfortunate to have been sitting behind first base, that Steve Sachs made 30 errors in 1983. It's ridiculous. Most on routine throws. It was a siege that began without warning early that year in, and which he ultimately overcame, although not before he considered quitting. This guy would be a Hall of Fame you know, nominee, and he thought about quitting baseball because he forgot the mechanics of how to field and throw. He was bumbling the, the grounder and chunking his throws to first base. And one day, noticing this terrible problem, legendary manager Tommy Lasorda put him aside, got him aside, and he started talking to his premier second baseman. He said, man, Steve, you've had quite a thrilling ride in your career. Yeah, yeah, you're right, Tommy. Let's face it, how many people can make the big leagues? And of those who make the big leagues, how many can say, I've played an all-star game. I've been rookie of the year, right? You're right, yeah. And as far as your steals are concerned, man, you've been stealing bases at will. Nobody can gun you, gun you down, big leaguer. You're right, yes. And your bat, come on. How many players can say they've batted 300 for an entire season? What do you think of that? And he said, you're right, Tommy. It's been unbelievable. I've been able to do a lot in a short time. And then Tommy Lasorda turned to him, and as only Tommy Lasorda could quip, said, um, what about that throw to first base, Steve? How many big leaguers do you think, do you figure, can make that throw? And he said, just about all of them, I would guess. 
And he says, yeah, I think you're right. I would guess, he said, that most women and children can make that throw, Steve. And then he walked away. <laughs> and that was his way of telling his second baseman, you got to get back to the basics. you got to master the fundamentals of baseball or it's going to cost you your career. And the same is true in terms of fundamentals in the Christian life. We have to know the basics. We have to keep those basics before them so that we can implement them with wisdom. And we're going to look at a passage, guys, Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 9, beginning next week, that will teach us the fundamentals of discipling our children. Huge, huge, important thing. And with the time I have left, I, I want to just explain the background just a little bit of this text because I think it'll help us understand one thing, and that is that your family's spiritual health is exceedingly important to God. Exceedingly important to God. And that's why he wants to help us. And we pick up the narrative, the Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, at the time of the nation of Israel, just before the conquest of the land of Canaan. This is right after the 40 years of wandering in the desert. You remember that story? And that entire faithless generation, the generation that refused to believe God for his promises, the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that entire generation died in the wilderness. That's two million people, two million plus. Think about that, right? That's a lot of people that had to pass on from the scene in order for Israel to, to make progress on her future who we could say, oh, their only sin was not believing. That shows us how cheap faith is to us sometimes and how precious it is to the Lord. 2,000 people were purged from the ranks of Israel in order for Israel to be in a position to receive her inheritance. In fact, that wasn't the end of the perching. As they were marching towards the, the Holy Land, as they were marching towards Canaan, they were tempted and fell again, and God had to eliminate 24,000 people with a plague in one day at Baal Peor because they wanted to join themselves and were joining themselves to Baal, a false god, through the debauched sexual practices of the Moabites, which were part of their worship rites. Remember that story? When Balak, the regional king of Moab, hired Balaam to curse. He was a pagan prophet, but hired them to curse Israel. Remember that? And when he would open up his mouth to curse Israel, you can read it in Numbers 22 through 25, what would happen? It would be a blessing. He would open his mouth. He really wanted to curse the Jews. He wanted to help Balak wipe them off the face of the map. Some things never change. But he would open his mouth, and instead of a curse, what would come out? Ma tovu o chalecha Yaakov mishkenotecha Yisrael, which means how lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. And you can imagine how it must have ticked off Balak. I'm paying good money for you to curse these people. Every time you speak, you bless them. And yet, he said this to, to Balak. He said, look, I, I can't curse Israel. God won't let me. He just puts different words in my mouth. My, my heart is there, but my mouth won't obey. But I tell you, you can get them. You can compromise them morally. You can reach into the inner sanctum of the family, seduce the men through these women, 
break down their family and their ability to pass on their faith, you know what? That'll make God so mad, he's going to destroy them for you. And that's what they tried to do. And God moved in, and 24,000 were killed in one day until Phinehas, the, the son of Aaron, the grandson of Aaron, came and, and stopped the plague by killing some real bad rebel people. Sounds very bloody and hard, but man, it was important for God to have an integrous family unit, an integrous people and bloodlines. And so right now, the, the Jews were encamped on the plains of Moab. They were perched on the plains of Moab, east of the Jordan River. And all the promises to the patriarchs, the anticipation of their fathers, all their hopes as a people were on the cusps of being realized. Israel was literally at the most important crossroads in her young history. And in the middle of that, at that point, God delivers a series of messages to his people through Moses, which we have come to know as the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy, the last book in the Torah, is basically Moses' swan song. And what adds a layer here of interest in this background is that both Moses and the people understood that Moses would not enter the promised land at this point. He was going to die east of the Jordan. God had to judge him because he failed to treat the Lord as holy at the waters of Meribah. It's a different story. I don't have time to tell it. But he told Moses, I love you, but because you didn't treat me holy before the people, I'm not going to let you go into the promised land. And he knew that, and the people knew that, and the people at this juncture in the history of Israel, finally, this new believing generation loved Moses and held him in deference and respected him. You say, didn't they always? No, their fathers badgered this man for 40 years. They hated him. They accused him of wrong motives. They accused him of graft. They accused him of being a power-hungry dictator. They accused him of malevolence. In fact, they wanted to kill him at one point. Now, that's a pretty tough goal, it's one, you know, especially for human resources. We want to fire the guy, but we want to kill him, too. You know, that's a bit tricky to pull off. But that's how antagonistic towards Moses they were. But this new generation loved Moses. So what does that mean? It means that they knew he was about to die, and these were his last words. When somebody's about to die, and they say, there's one more thing I want to say to you, what do you do? You listen. That's the book of Deuteronomy, by the way. And, I might add, Chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, which we'll consider, is the fulcrum on which the whole book rests. It's the keynote message of the entire book. And so you have these very interesting confluence of factors here. The people are purged, they're humble, they're teachable. You have the final words of a beloved leader whom they're desirous to hear. You have national Israel about to embrace her destiny the information that God is going to share through Moses is absolutely essential for Israel. In fact, their conquest of Canaan and their success in the land is absolutely dependent on them hearing, understanding, and obeying. In fact, the word Shema, the, the word for this, this confession, means to listen with a view towards obedience. So it's a very interesting confluence of factors, but there's one more thing I want to bring to your attention, guys, and we'll end with this. Who was the target audience? 
Whom did God address at this critical juncture in Israel's history before her day of manifest destiny with make or break information? Whom did God say, I got to talk to this group or without this group, we have Gornish, we're, we're gone, we're dead. Now, just step back from that for a second and ask yourselves, whom would we choose to address at this critical point? especially given the fact that it was a military campaign with a political outworking, the settling of the land, etc. Whom would we choose? I would choose the military, the brass, you know, the, the, the men who could strategize, get them in a room together, hear what Moses is saying or God is saying through Moses. I mean, nobody can design a more clever battle war plan than the Israelis, right? Get the military brass in. Get... The intelligence, the, the Mossad, the Shin Bet, like the 12 spies who went to spy out the land, get that, their input. Put Caleb in charge of intelligence. Maybe it would be the infrastructure gurus, the Army Corps of Engineers, the people who can make the settlement run easy. You'd want to include them. Maybe the judges of Israel, the wisest among the Israelis, the economists. And there are many others we could talk about, including... But the key question is this. Whom did God view as the most important group to address? Who was the one group that was absolutely essential to address for the birth of a nation and also for the future of a people? And the answer to that, in God's eyes, is the family. You have a military campaign. You have a seminal address in an essential book. You have this this determinate crux of Israel's history, and God says, oh man, if I got to talk to anybody, I got to make sure I talk to the parents and grandparents. What? Why? Because their spiritual integrity was the key to the nation's success. So he gathers and assembles the people and speaks to the heads of households in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, contextually, as a matter of logical consequence, he addresses the fathers, but that includes the mothers, that includes the grandparents, that includes those who have the, the responsibility of raising the next generation. Guys, the stability, the strength, the health of the family unit through the mentoring of their children was the most critical group to the success of this burgeoning and budding young nation. And that holds true for the people of God throughout history. That holds true for you and I today. And it will hold true, true to the future. I was reading the birth narrative of Jesus this week in Luke. You know, and Luke opens up with a promise that was promised in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. In the book of Malachi, God said, I'm going to send my Messiah, but before him will come a forerunner. And that proved to be in the first advent, John the Baptist, right? But this is one of those prophecies that's going to have a dual fulfillment. There's going to be a future coming of Jesus, the second coming. And before he comes, there will be a forerunner that comes in the spirit and power of Elijah, like John and like the Old Testament promise. And you know what he's going to do? The same thing John did, the same thing promised by Malachi. He will come to restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. He's going to come to establish Familial, spiritual integrity in the home. Why? It tells us to make ready a people made ready for the Lord. 
Your family's spiritual health and the discipleship of your children is immensely important to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, there's been a lot fired up here, and we just pray that you would communicate to our hearts what you desire. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen my brothers and sisters to shepherd their familial flock. Lord, we know that you, by your grace and your sufficient word, you can, you can equip us to do that. And we pray that um, we would see beautiful fruit in each of these families as a, as a result of the discipleship heart of each parent here. Lord, we thank you for your word, for not leaving us in the dark. We thank you for the work that you're doing through this church, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.